Welcome to Revolution Church. If you are new, uh, or if you maybe came for the first time last week and you're like, where's that bald guy? Is he the preacher? No, this is the dude with hair, all right? And so the bald guy's back in Jasper, and Pastor Chad is, uh, man, didn't he do a great job last weekend on the message? Yeah. Uh, him and I just traded places last weekend. He was here in Canton preaching. I was in Jasper hosting, and uh, we are one church in multiple cities. And so it was a lot of fun last weekend just hanging out and just seeing the work of God in our church. Um, because our church is bigger than one place. It is a group of people on the move and to see God working, not just in Canton, not just in Jasper, but literally all over the world is quite breathtaking to just get to experience. So it was great last weekend for us to trade places, for me to hang out there, for him to preach there. And he kicked us off in this season that we call Advent and the idea that these four Sundays before uh, we get to Christmas where we take a moment and we kind of pause and we reflect and we think about the coming of Christ that is still yet to come. And we let the first coming of Christ be a reminder to us that he will come again. And it's meant to produce hope. It's meant to produce peace and all those types of feelings that we so desperately want and need. And so we're going to pick up kind of with that same thought, but we're actually going to start a new series of messages today. We're going to take a break from the gospel of John. We'll get back into those into 2022, which is just crazy to think that we're almost at 2022. Um, but we'll get back into that. But we're going to do a, a couple messages getting into Christmas this year on, on a theme or a, a concept that's really God has been working in my own personal life um, and, and something that I just feel like he has been working with me on and wrestling with me on. And you know, and sometimes when, when God does that as a pastor, you know, first and foremost, I'm a Christian, and then I am a pastor. And so sometimes God works in my life, and, and I have to really kind of discern, all right, Lord, is that just for me? Or is that just for me in my house? Or is that for me in your house and the church? And, and this is something that's been happening for several months, and, and just everything, you know, God speaks in stereo a lot of times. And so as I started praying through it and even talking to our staff, and as we started laying out this series, I realized, oh, this is not just for me. This is for our house. This is for the church. And so there's a concept that I want us to understand and see and really start to think about that we're going to talk about over these next three weeks. And it's the idea of leaving a legacy, leaving a legacy with our life. And there's this reason that I've been talking about this, and again, I've even kind of mentioned it in some messages and other environments. My, my son is about to be 18 years old, and he is going to go off to college next year, and, and this is our first child to leave the house, which is the goal of all parents, right, for them to grow up and leave. You love them, but you want them to leave, and um, you want them to, you know, come back and visit and that kind of stuff, but so this idea in my mind has, has been wrestling around or kind of banging around and thinking, man, have I done enough to raise him right? Have, have Lindsay and I prepared him? We've been having a lot of conversations about that because it's multifaceted. It, it's the idea of have I prepared him enough in faith? That, does he have a rock solid foundation about who God is? As, as one preacher said, he wanted his kids to be independently dependent on Jesus. And so does he have that, a faith that his, is his own? And, and we believe he does. And and, and not just faith, but, but is he grounded in our family, right? Like who we are as a people, uh, our, our family and, and the things that make our family unique. And so is he grounded in that? Is he also grounded in finances? Does, does he understand that? Uh, and there's been courses that I've taken him through and goals that we've set. And I'll talk more about those in this series that we said that when he graduated high school, we wanted him to have these kind of milestones. And so is he prepared for that? Him and I were just talking the other day about getting his first credit card and what that looks like and all those types of things, how payments work. And so been having all these conversations because honestly, I'm trying to do two things. I'm trying to make sure, you know, I'm trying to be faithful to God. And then I'm trying to do the world a favor, <laughs> Right. I'm trying to do the world a favor and make sure that when our son shows up in the world, everybody's like, I like that kid. I like that dude. He's a benefit to society. He's not a drain, right? And so when I'm talking about legacy, that's ultimately what I'm saying. Because see, watch this. Our legacy is not so much in what we do on our resume. 
That's not your legacy. Your legacy is what your life impacts and what other people do. See, legacy is not so much about what you do, what achievements you create. Legacy is about how your life impacts others and how it changes what they do. As one mentor in my life said that his fruit grew on other people's trees. That's the idea of legacy. That my legacy really is tied up in how I affected those around me, my relationships. And that's first and foremost in my own house. And so there's a concept that I've been thinking about with legacy, and then there was a realization that we had as we were talking about this, and it's the first point I wanna give you. I'm gonna kind of start this whole series of messages off with a thought, and then we're gonna unpack it in the Bible. So if you're taking notes, you might wanna write this down. It's pretty simple, but yet profound. If we want to leave a legacy in the future, then we have to lead a legacy. If we want to leave one, we have to lead one. So the title of this message series is titled Leading a Legacy. And I'm stressing that because I didn't want you to think there's a typo somewhere. Like, oh, I thought it's about leaving a legacy. Oh, it is. But here's the idea. I can't leave something if I don't lead it. This is the biblical concept of I reap what I sow. Thank you. Right? And, and here's the thing about pastoring. In fact, Pastor Chad and I just had this conversation this week talking about a situation. The thing about pastoring that we deal with all the time is we try to help you make the connection between those two things. Because we'll have people come into our offices and say, man, I'm so shocked that I didn't get watermelon in my life. I got corn. Now, they don't say it just like that. I'm being metaphorical here. Never had anybody walk in and be like, I just didn't get watermelon. I'm shocked. But here's what we try to help them see. Well, the reason why you didn't get watermelon is because you planted corn back there. And here's what I know to be true. If you plant corn, you get what? Corn. But you'll be amazed how many people think that they can plant dysfunction and reap function. You'll be amazed how many people say, oh, I can plant crazy and yet reap whole. As one guy said, you marry crazy, you get crazy. Right? I mean, think about that. How many of us planted in hopes that it would change along the way? And all I'm trying to get you to see is that ain't how the world works, sucker. You reap what you sow. So if you want a different legacy in the future to leave, you have to start leading one today. You have to start leading one today. Now let's get into some scripture. We're actually gonna be in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 78 is where we're gonna be. If you don't know where that is, it's right before the Proverbs, all right? And that is in your Old Testament. And the book of Psalms are quite fascinating. In fact, growing up as a kid, I didn't really know how to deal with them a lot of times because they were super emotional. And I'm being for real about that. Like there's a lot of emotions in the Psalms. In fact, one third of them are Psalms that are called imprecatory Psalms, which are the writer is asking God to kill their enemies. And you read that, you're like, is that the Bible? Like, he's like, God, like, kill him. Well, here's the thing. He prayed it. He didn't practice it. And this is the idea of we got to learn how to go to God with our emotions. We got to go to God with our emotions. And that's what the book of Psalm is. It, it, any human emotion that you have, anger, sadness, joy, um, the idea of legacy, it's in the Psalms. And they are there as the book to help us see how to live out, how to pray our emotions. And this particular psalm is interesting. It's not written by David. It's written by a different guy named Asaph. And at the top of the text, depending upon the translation you have, it may say a masculine of Asaph. And that is simply a, a musical term. He was a cymbal player, the book of Chronicles tells us. And he wrote 12 different psalms. So he was a musician. 
And this is either a song or a poem, which is really cool that we now have at our church our whole rev music that are writing songs. And one of them we sang earlier. And those songs are musicians, creatives expressing truths about God. Well, that's simply what the Psalms are. And this one specifically is about the next generation, is about the idea of legacy. So let me get, I'm going to do eight verses. Let's do the first three. It says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. That just simply means mysterious or intriguing. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So the first thing that he says here is he's writing this. Again, you think a song, you think a poem. He's calling attention to the people that he's writing this to, and he's saying, listen. Listen, oh my people. Now that phrase there, oh my people, is a very important one. In fact, if you were here back in our Welcome to Our Family series, if you weren't, that's online, you can go watch it. We talked about how discipleship Learning to be a disciple of Jesus is ultimately the process of putting off the dysfunction, what we learn from our family of origin and our culture, and then being discipled, learning how to live in the new family of Jesus. So watch this. Discipleship is not just my relationship with God. It is, no, I'm a part of a different group of people now. My family changed. I'm not in the same family now. I'm a part of the people of God. And how discipleship works is in the same way when you were born into your family, into your family of origin, however that story happened, you learned how to talk and you learned the language that they talked. Not only did you learn the language that they talked, you started acting the way that they did. You watched, observed, and did. That's how learning, that's how growth works. It's way more caught than it is taught. Now think about that in terms of discipleship. Discipleship, and I'm not saying it doesn't involve listening. Obviously, we're all here and we are listening. I'm preaching. But what really makes a transformation is I don't just come and hear a message and leave, but I come hear a message with my people, which is why we have groups. And there's community groups. In fact, there's a uh, the, the specific message this week. I'll, I'll reference a question that we're going to ask in our groups this week. If you're a part of one, that's when you start to flesh out what you hear with your people. And so the idea of people is integral in understanding, watch this, patterns in your life. Let me say it like this. You're going to pattern your life by what you love most or who you love most. Whoever you love most is going to dictate the patterns in your life. That's just how it works, according to brain science. I'm not even talking biblically, although I can make the case biblically, but I'm just talking about we know how our brain works now. The patterns that we develop, the actions, the habits in our lives are determined hugely by the people around us. So here the writer is saying, listen, my people, this is what we do. This is how we act. I'm gonna tell you things that we've heard. We heard from our fathers, and now I'm giving you instructions. So let's get into what those are. Verse four, he says, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Now let's stop and chat here for a second. So he highlights, he says, give ear, O my people, listen to what I'm about to teach you. And then he reminds them of what their fathers had taught them, what what they had been commanded by fathers. It doesn't just mean biological fathers. It means fathers of the faith. And how we know that is he points out, he established a testimony in Jacob. 
Now, uh, we did a whole series last year called Welcome to the Wrestle, and I'm not gonna do it in my best WWE voice. You can go back and watch that. I gotta watch my voice these days, all right? But we talked about the story of Jacob and how Jacob wrestled with God. And what's interesting about the story of Jacob, if you've ever read in your Old Testament, and some, even some in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul refers to it like this, that God is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here's what's very interesting about the story. It wasn't supposed to be Jacob. Jacob had an older brother. He was a twin who came out first, and his name was Esau. So technically speaking, it should have been Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But if you don't know the story, I'll recap it quickly for you. The reason why it was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is because Esau sold his birthright, sold his blessing for a bowl of soup. He sold out, watch this, he sold out his future, his future blessing, his future birthright for a bowl. And we look at that and you're like, how crazy do you have to be, bro, for real? Like you sold out blessing for some Brunswick stew? And I've talked about that in this series. And, and I mean, it's pretty good, you know, but I mean, it ain't that good. Like I'm willing to trade all my future generational blessings for this bowl. I mean, I love me some brisket, but I ain't selling out for brisket either. Future blessings for brisket? I'll take some watered down pulled pork instead, right? Like, I ain't, I ain't selling out that mine for, for half of you. I just lost the room. You're like, that. But, but listen to it. Here's what I'm getting at. I'm pointing this out because this has huge implications for you and me. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. Your actions now can create generational blessings or generational curses. Your actions. As one pastor said, there's a lot of people that sell out what they want most for what they want now. And here's what I'm trying to get us to see. Don't sell out what you want most for what you want now just because the bowl looks beautiful. And what's gonna keep you from doing that? Here's the contention. What's gonna keep you from doing that is you recognizing that whatever you do you create a pattern for those who come after you to do. Whatever you do, you create a pattern for those who come after you. Let me say it like this. This puts obedience in a completely different light. Let me give you an example. It's one I talk about often. If I don't obey the Lord, and I talked about finances earlier with my son, if I don't obey the Lord, in the area of finances, and I don't tithe. I don't give to the Lord first. And I used to, in my younger years, I would like, you know, kind of be nervous because people think, oh, there he goes, talking about that, that's what the church wants. No, it's not about the church, it's about you, and it's about your kids. Here's what I mean. If I don't tithe in my health, health, <laughs> then I'm not obeying the Lord. That's one generation. But then I teach my kids that they don't have to obey the Lord either because they didn't see it in me. So if I don't tithe, then I teach my kids that they don't have to tithe. And watch this. I just set the kingdom of God back two generations. Two generations. And here's a growing conviction I have. I'm 43 years old. My son's 17. I told you he'd be 18. I don't want, when my son is 43 years old, sitting in, probably not a church pew, but sitting in some chair in a church, and another pastor is having to tell him things that he should have heard from me. I don't want my son being like, well, dad didn't tell me that. See, I want to leave a legacy of faith in my kids. But in order to do that, I got to lead a legacy now. Let's just dig into some of the things he says. He says, we will not hide them from our children, but we will tell them 
Three things that he says here that just kind of jump off the page to me. He says, but I will tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might and wonders that he has done. Three words there, glorious, might, and wonder. Let me ask you a question. Is there much glorious talk in your house? Talk about how glorious God is and what he's done? How amazing it is? Or is there a lot of talk of gloom in your house? A lot of gloom about the world that we're in. As if this is the first time that the world has had anything bad happen. Second one, his might. Is there a lot of conversations in our houses about the mightiness of God and how great he is and how, yes, it may seem like his back is against the wall and he may even let you die, but his power is so great he can bring you back from the dead? Is there, is there much conversations about might or is there a lot of conversations about fright? We're so afraid. I've told you this before, but the number one command in the entire Bible is do not be afraid. But yet we're creating a generation of children who are more afraid, more fearful, more anxious than ever. Which leads me to the third one, wonder. Is there wonder in your homes? Just think about it, the word wonder. And it's not like, oh, I wonder. No, biblically speaking, it's miraculous. Unexplainable. Is there a lot of conversations in our homes about the wonder of God? And I try to do this with my daughter. In fact, today, today is my daughter's 12-year-old birthday. 12 years old. Yeah. Yeah, she's still alive. Right? We can pray, like, thank you that, you know, we have, haven't messed it up. And, and one of the things that I try to do with my daughter a lot and, and is explain to her, and I've talked about this a lot here, is just her story of how she got into our family. Because if you don't know, she's not biological. She's adopted, which doesn't make her any less than. But I've explained to her how God used her life before she was even born to give our family direction and purpose because I want her to be amazed by the wonder of God and how he used a child in her birth mother's womb to give direction to a family. And here we are 12 years later. And I've told you this, that I accepted the position at Revolution Church this day, 12 years ago. And God specifically told me in her nursery, just like you didn't start this, this uh, didn't like, you didn't birth this baby, but you're adopting her. You didn't birth this church, but I want you to adopt this church. And so God has used my daughter's life in glorious, wonderful ways. And I never want her to doubt that about herself. And we'll be driving down the road and she'll make a comment about the color of the trees as they you know, have changed. Like, look at that yellow. And then I'll say, Natalie, here's what's crazy. Who made the color yellow? Who made that color? And she knows what I'm doing now. God. <laughs> yeah, but did he have to make it yellow? Did he have to make it orange? Did he have to make it red? He could have made a whole world of just gray tones. And those of us who remember black and white TVs, we understand but he didn't. When is the last time you walked outside and just let the wonder of who God is invade your heart? See, if we want to create a generation of people who know the glorious deeds of God, who know his might and are amazed in wonder, then they have to see it in us. But so much of our house is not filled with wonder, it's filled with worry. So instead of glory, there's gloom. Instead of might, there's fright. Instead of wonder, there's worry. 
And here's what I'm trying to get us to see. If we're going to change the spiritual landscape of the next generation's heart, it's not going to happen through political means. It's not going to happen through education. We've tried all those things. And it's not even going to happen per se, like esoterically by the ministry of the church. It's going to happen, watch this, when the previous generation decide to do it themselves. To say, you know what, for me and my house, we're going to glory in the Lord and in his might and in his wonder. And then I'm going to tell the next generation. See, here's, church, what I'm trying to get you to see. It puts your obedience in a different light when you understand that your obedience affects other people's obedience. I don't want the legacy of my life in the life of my children to be one of disobedience. I want the legacy to be one of faithfulness to the Lord. Why? Because if it's not, watch what happens. Look at the next verse, next two verses. That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. If you, ironically there, or not ironically, there's a case in the Supreme Court this week dealing with this very issue. And I'm not trying to get into political arguments. I'm just trying to say, biblically speaking, how the Bible sees that. The children yet unborn. And it's not just, are they a child or not? It's about their future. Look at this. They will arise and tell them to their children. God is a generational God. Now look at verse seven. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Now don't miss this. The next generation, their hopes hinge in large part to our obedience now. To our obedience now. See, if I disobey the Lord in any area of my life, I'm establishing a pattern of how my people live. And then my kids and anybody else, and, and you may not even have children. This isn't a message about people who just have kids or maybe your kids don't live at home now. You got, it's, isn't about, it's just the principle of the next generation because sometimes that's biological, sometimes that's your children, sometimes that's just who you influence. But my point is simply this. There is a generation that's coming after you, like it or not. And in large part about how they see the Lord will be determined by how we see him. If we don't see the glorious, the might, the wonder, if we don't seek to practice the commands of God in such a way where it creates patterns for those who come after us, watch this, then they won't know him and they won't have hope. See, hope comes from knowing God. Knowing God comes from being told about him. And being told about him comes from not the pastor, but the parents. The parents. As he said in verse five, which he commanded the fathers to teach their children. The fathers. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about an Advent devotional that we created. It's very simple. It's online. It's on our app. And Advent is about the four Sundays leading into Christmas. And we simply said that we created this devotional so that you, every Sunday night, those four Sundays, could get your family together and have just a short devotional. And the reason why we did that, and remember, I'm a pastor, I'm also a husband, I'm also a father. It's hard for me as a, pastor, as a father and husband sometimes to even lead my own family spiritually in like specific organized ways. And so we did this because we wanted to help create a new tradition in the families of our church that you might do something like this in the future. 
but we wanted to make it easy for you to start now if you'd never started. So last Sunday night, we had takeout Chinese, and after our table was, you know, still messy with Chinese food and unopened fortune cookies, we opened up the Advent devotional, and we just talked about it, read the scriptures, asked questions. Now, there wasn't like this life-altering moment where the heavens opened up, the angels came down, and there was glory singing, and, ever, and we busted out in worship for like four hours, and that didn't happen. But you know what did happen? A small pattern was started. And tonight, we'll do it again. And if you didn't start last week, you can start tonight. And if you're a father, I told this to our Jasper campus, I'll say it to both of you this week. If you're a father, you take the lead on this. And I get it's awkward and weird, it's okay. Because God can deal with awkward and weird obedience. Just pull it up, start reading. Hey, we're gonna have conversation. I don't want to, Dad. Well, I'll take your PS4 out of your room. You can make this happen. Give me your phone. It amazes me how parents are like, yeah, I just don't know what to do. <laughs> take their phone away. Are you serious? Oh, that's a whole nother message. All right. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I didn't mean that to be offensive. Uh, probably some repression I need to talk to my counselor about. All right. But what I'm saying is this, you see the thermostat is not the one that sets the temperature in my home. I am. Now in my home, they know because my father's a HVAC man. It is me who sets the thermostat. Don't you touch that sucker. We haven't even turned the heat on in my house yet. And we won't. Because until your teeth are chattering, we don't need to. Because we got blankets. That's right. There's only so, so many clothes I can take off, but there's a lot more that I can put on. But you said, I'm, I, you set the temperature. And if, if you don't have a father, if you're a single mother, you got the honor. You do the best you can or the circumstances that you're in. If you're single, you do it yourself. You set the pattern. And in the pattern is the power, because here's what you don't want. Look at verse eight. So he tells them what to do, and then he says this, and that they should not be like their fathers. They should not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The worst thing in the world that could ever be said about me, and I'm talking me personally, is that I failed as a father. And, and don't take this the wrong way, but this church could grow, and it has grown for 12 years by God's grace, can grow and plant churches and plant campuses and grow and grow and grow and grow. But if I fail as a father, I failed. The worst thing that could be said about me is when my kids stand at my funeral one day and feel like they have to lie. Now, I'm not being mean, but listen to me. I've done a lot of funerals. And you've experienced a lot of these too. But have you noticed that death makes saints out of people? I'm being for real. They'll be a horrible person and they'll get up there at the funeral and feel some kind of way and be like, well, we can't say that. And I've been in places where a friend will stand up and rave about this person and I'll look over at their family and they're like, mm-mm, they lying. See, I don't want my legacy to be one that people have to lie about. And doing something big, watch this, 
Doing something big is not owning something big, like a big house, a big car, a big bank account. Doing something big is being someone big and leaving a legacy that is big in someone else's life. See, I don't want my kids to have to say, we don't want to be like our father. Our father loved to preach, but he was horrible in his practice. And there's a lot of preachers that their kids say that about them. But legacy is about future. And I'm trying to connect that for you, but if you want a different future, then you have to start today. And here's the good news. You can start today. That's the good news. You can create a different tomorrow if you start planting today. Because I don't want your kids to have to lie about you. And they say things like, yeah, their heart wasn't steadfast. And that means fixed. They were wishy-washy. Their spirit wasn't faithful to God. I want people to be raving about the fact that your heart was fixed on God in the midst of a crazy culture. That your spirit was faithful to God in the midst of a bunch of people falling away. Because that's the greatest legacy that we can leave in the lives of other people. And I think about that in my own life. And I've shared some of this throughout the years, but I told you, I didn't grow up in church knowing anything about God because the legacy of my family was not one of faith. I spent most Sundays on the racetracks with my father or on the sports field with my friends. But it was through sports, providentially, that I spent the night with my friends on Saturday night and then I went to church and I learned about a father and I trusted Christ and got saved. But there was a lot of dysfunction that was giving, given to me by my father. And, and I don't think that he would mind me telling you this now because of how God has worked. But my father was an alcoholic that was gone all the time. So that was the legacy that he was leaving. And I grew up very frustrated with my father because he wasn't around but it wasn't until I trusted Christ and got saved and then Christ came into my family and then my father started following Jesus. Then he went from never coming to my ball games to always being there, even at practices. But it wasn't until I understand, oh, my father was just living out the legacy of his father, my grandfather. Because see, my father grew up with an even worse father my grandfather left home when he was 13, lived on his own ever since, served in World War II, got captured in the Pacific Theater, got his throat cut. He was a hard dude, worked in the oil field. He was a roughneck. Literally, my father describes times where he would just beat people almost to death because he was mean. He was so mean that one time my father got in trouble and he put my dad in the doghouse outside for three days and two nights in his underwear. Yeah, he'd be arrested for that junk today. One time he was trying to help my dad or my grandfather out and my grand, he made my grandfather so mad that my, he grabbed his shotgun and my dad took off running and as he rounded the corner, my grandfather shot and hit the house. That was my grandfather. But my dad would always tell me, Jason, the dad that I had and the grandfather you know are two different people because here's what you don't know. When my grandfather was in his 60s, he trusted Jesus. But it helped me understand him better because his dad, my great-grandfather, came from Germany before World War I as things were getting really bad there. I have the paper where he landed on Ellis Island in New York when he became a citizen of this country. He left, literally, his family just shipped him and his brother over here. So I started looking at my family. I'm like, okay, a lot of this makes sense now. Some of the dysfunction I have came from my father's dysfunction, but my father's dysfunction came from my grandfather's dysfunction. My grandfather's dysfunction came from my great-grandfather's dysfunction, and that's as far back as we go. I don't know anything else. 
But the amazing thing is, my grandfather, my dad's dad, you want to know my two greatest memories of him? You see, I was young when he was in his 60s and he trusted Jesus. My two greatest memories are of him reading his large letter Bible, large print Bible, with his magnifying glass and watching the Braves. He loved the Braves because they were on you know, the free access channel. And so even in South Arkansas, that's what he got on TV was the Braves. He loved the Braves and he loved his Bible. And it hit me. God didn't just change my life, but he changed my life and then in turn changed my dad's life and then in turn changed my grandfather's life. To the point now where we created a reverse legacy. One that wasn't being transferred down of trauma, but one that now hopefully is being transferred forward into transformation. Because here's a point, you may want to write this down. This is what I'm talking about. What doesn't get transformed gets transferred. What doesn't get transformed in your life will get transferred. My great-grandfather transferred trauma onto my grandfather to the point where he left home at 13 and never went back. And that crazy lifestyle, roughneck, hard, very hard, created a transference of trauma in my dad's life to where my dad grew up with a very hard man who beat him. And then that transferred into my life, my brother and sister and me's life, trauma. But by the grace of God, I don't want to transfer that trauma into my son's life, my daughter's life. I praise God that they know nothing about what my dad was. And they know nothing about what I was before I trusted Jesus. And I had this conversation with Jackson not too long ago because on all of my dad's part of the family, Jackson is the last male with the name Gertis. He's the last one. My brother has a daughter, my sister doesn't have kids, and every, all the other cousins, family, no more male Gertises, at least in our family line. And I was telling him, I said, Jackson, it's all on you now, buddy. You're the last one. He was like, Thank, and he was like 12. He's like, thanks, dad. No pressure. But my point is, listen, son, God's done too much in our lives of transformation to no longer let that be our legacy. I want the legacy that my son passes on, that my daughter passes on, to be one of transformation, not one of trauma. So listen to me, church. Here's what I'm trying to get to you. It's not a question of if you will pass it on. It's only a question of what. Because what doesn't get transformed in you will get transferred to them. You can't stop it. It will happen. And so what we have to do is we have to pause long enough and ask ourselves the question, what kind of legacy am I leaving? December 7th, 1972, one of the Apollo missions went up to the moon. And when they went, they were obviously headed to the moon. They had what they would now describe as almost a supernatural experience where they were surprised, they were shocked. This is two days from being 49 years ago. That when they went up to the moon, they were so focused on going to the moon that when they got up out of the atmosphere far enough, you know, the moon is 250 miles away, far enough where they could look back at the earth they were stunned at what they saw. And they took the first photo taken by humans of our planet. And it's this photo right here. That photo, that exact photo. 
which is now called the Blue Marble. And they were so shook by the feeling of seeing that that they wrote about it. And I'm gonna read you a couple quotes at what they said. It was quite a shock. I don't think any of us had any expectations about how it would give us such a different perspective. I think the focus had been, we're going to the stars. We're going to other planets. And suddenly we look back at ourselves and it seems to imply a new kind of self-awareness. Another one said, when we originally went to the moon, our total focus was on the moon. We weren't thinking about looking back at earth. But now that we've done it, that may well have been the most important reason we went. And here's why I'm telling you this. So many of us are living our lives so focused on the moon, so focused on climbing the next step in the corporate ladder, so focused on becoming someone, so focused on the next thing, the next phone, the next trend, the next account, the next cell, that we're moving so fast, literally, thousands of miles per hour that we never stop long enough to look back at our life and ask ourselves the question, am I even going the right direction? What kind of effect am I having on those around me? This psychological effect was so great that another guy wrote a book about it and he called it this, the overview effect. You can go look it up. The overview effect. And what they described was that this was such a psychological shift that these astronauts were fundamentally changed by what they saw. And it wasn't what was in front of them. It was what was behind them. And the guy who wrote the books got it by the name of Frank Wright and I have one last quote for you on the screen from him. And it says this, when you're on a roller coaster, you don't have much time to be philosophical. And the point of that is this, when your life is moving so fast, you don't have much time to think, what kind of legacy am I leaving? And part of the reason why we're doing this series and part of the reason why we're gonna do our 21 day fast that we're gonna do in January, so go ahead and get prepared for it now. Over these next two months, what we're hoping is this that you and I will slow down long enough. We'll slow down long enough to look back at the overview of our life and ask ourselves this question, what effect am I having? Am I having the kind of effect that Psalm 78 says I should have. Where I'm telling the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, his wonders, or am I having the type of effect where I'm actually producing more anxious, not God-honoring children, workplaces, teams. So our hope is that we slow down long enough that we can have a psychological shift where we get a view of our life and say, man, that's who I really am. But here's the good news. The grace of God can meet you there. And then he can create a new story. How do I know that? Way back in verse five or verse four, it said, he established a testimony in Jacob. God did that. See, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. God transformed Jacob's life. And he can do the same with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of these scriptures. And God, I pray that we will slow down long enough to have a moment like these astronauts did almost 49 years ago, where we can look back on our life. And ask ourselves the, the question, what effect am I having? And God, I'm sure 
that when we do that, there is gonna be guilt and regret for what we did do that we shouldn't have done, but also, God, for what we should have done but we didn't do. And God, I pray that you would meet us there. You would meet us there and let us know that you have grace for us, that you can transform our name, you can transform our story, you can give us a new testimony of how you met us. You can establish a new line of generational faith in us. And so God, I pray for those right now who have not trusted Jesus, who have not had that happen, that you would meet with them and you would transform them. No one looking around or talking here as we wrap this up, if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never met him and had him change you, then that can happen today. Because he wants to. He stepped into your story to give you a new name. And so if you want to trust him, you can pray with me. You don't have to do this out loud. But it goes like this. You can say, Father, thank you for loving me. That you sent your son, Jesus, in my place for my sin. I believe that Jesus was born, died, and rose again. And I'm trusting in him alone to save me. Would you forgive me? Thank you for loving me. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just pray that with me for the first time, would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Both locations. We've got men and women gonna walk around, put a gift in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. Thank you. In just a moment, you have an opportunity to fill out our digital connection card, whether you're online or in person, and let us know who you are. But then those of us who have trusted Jesus, I pray today would be a convicting message, but also an encouraging one in the sense that, yes, you can't change the past, but by God's grace, you can create a different future. You can allow the grace of God to come in and rewrite your story, and it can have generational effects. Like I said, my grandfather didn't trust Christ until he was in his mid-60s. I baptized my great-grandmother when she was 90. It's never too late to write a new story. And so we can leave today and say, you know what, for me and my house, we're gonna talk about the glorious deeds of God. We're gonna talk about his might. We're gonna be a house of wonder because I want the next generation to know and have hope. Father, would you help us to not only be a generational church, but to be made up of generational families that have family lines of legacy because of the legacy we lead now. Give us the grace in Jesus' name, amen.